Welcome to In the Weeds, the podcast where we explore the intersection of writing and working in the service industry. I'm your host, Kaylee Brennan Delarusso. I'm thrilled to introduce my guest this week, Courtney Mom. Courtney is the author of three novels, as well as the memoir, The Year of the Horses, and also one of the best books for writers ever, called Before and After the Book Deal. She's also a book coach and runs the best-selling Substack newsletter, also titled Before and After the Book Deal, where she provides weekly publishing and writing tips. In this episode, Courtney talks about the array of jobs she had before being a best-selling writer, from waitressing in a restaurant in France, baristaing at Starbucks, and making crepes at a creperie. She talks about how all these experiences have benefited her writing life and how working in the service industry provided the flexibility and the financial stability we as writers are always looking for. We talked a little bit about country club culture, the teaching industry, and how MFA programs have some work to do in terms of guiding writers towards making reasonable career decisions. I'm so excited to share our conversation, and I hope you enjoy. first place was my dad who refused to give me an allowance and you know I was at that time a teenager not very this was around I think I was 14 when I got my first job um, and you know I wanted money for pizza and candy <laughs> and a little bit later Goldschlager or stuff like that but um, and he just refused to give me an allowance so you know, I thought, well, I need to get a job. My my very first job was not in the service industry. It was it was retail. It was working at a uh, a high end consignment shop that rented out costumes um, for galas and things like that. But I think I was in oh gosh, tenth grade maybe um, when I started working at Starbucks. <laughs> in Stamford, Connecticut, in a strip mall. And whatever year that was, it was the summer of, of the Frappuccino. It was the summer that the Frappuccino debuted. And as I had just joined Starbucks, um, I was at the bottom of the ladder. So I was Frappuccino maker. And like, I have some hearing issues to this day that I think it was the summer of the Powerball too. The Powerball was like, so high the lottery was so high and there were all these people queuing up to get lotto tickets at the convenience store next door and then get a frappuccino and it was just hours and hours and on end of, of frappuccino making so um that was my first kind of behind the counter job and then you know once you're in at starbucks it, it's you know it is a corporation so <laughs> when i went to college i was very easy it was you know transferred <laughs> and um but that the manager at that start, like the manager at the Starbucks in Stanford was just like stoner kid. And at the Providence, Rhode Island Starbucks, it was a real manager. And uh, <laughs> um, we had more or less across the street it was like this major retail street called Thayer Street which when I went to school was really grungy. And now these days, you know, it's very fancy, but um, we had a swap thing going on 
with a creperie across the street and down the lane. And every day around 4 p.m., the fellow who worked at the creperie would bring us all smoothies, not crepes, smoothies. We exchanged beverages for beverages, right? And we would give their staff whatever, something with caffeine. And there was a day I uh, showed up in um, what I thought was such a fetchy little work shirt. It was like a bowling shirt, someone's vintage bowling shirt with their name on it. And it just had very light blue pinstriping. And the kind of demon manager was like, I'm docking you time. You, you cannot have, it's not called pinstripes. What's it called? Piping right? Piping on the collar. You can't have piping. You have to go home and change. And, you know, I'd come there by bite. It was a whole thing. And so I, right before I biked home to get a new shirt, I stopped at the creperie and said, I think I want to quit. You guys know me. We see each other every day at four. Would you hire me? <laughs> and they said, yes. So I didn't go home and get another shirt. I quit. Um, and then I started working at that creperie and I also started working at a place at Brown University called the Blue Room, which was, you know, pretty simple fare, salads and uh, soups and whatnot, mostly for the, it was not open to the public. I think it was just for Brown students, RISD student, the art school down the way and teachers. Um, but the creperie was no joke like that. That's that. Those were the gateway drug places to <laughs> my work in um, restaurants. And I worked both on the East Coast and then also abroad because I lived in France for a really long time. <laughs> yeah. Was it when you worked abroad, when you were in France, was it easy to get <laughs> a restaurant job there? Oh, God. I mean, I probably should have looked a little harder. <laughs> um how the heck did I end up at this place? I remember the names of the, it was called the Rue de Lap, which is just debaucherous. It's a cobblestone alley in the 11th arrondissement that's just totally inane eateries. Like they're all based, it's a very New York City style street. So they're all like one place only serves tater tots. One place only serves fondue. You know, one place only serves Belgian beer and so on and so forth. And it's just notorious, like people coming out of there and vomiting. It, it, it's, it's gross. Um, but the place I went to work, I thought would be a little more upscale because it was a, its whole concepts was salads, salads and <laughs> <laughs> smoothies and like healthy cocktails. But when I started working there, I think I must have known someone who knew someone. I don't even remember how the heck I got there. I lived in the 11th, you know, it was my neighborhood. Um, my French was really good, but it wasn't restaurant good. Like I didn't know <laughs> some of the very strange, I had not been initiated into the strange non-alcoholic beverages of French people. There's this whole world that exists that doesn't exist here of syrups and sparkling water or seltzer so um all these different flavors which is actually becoming a little bit popular now but you know so one time someone ordered from me um i think it was a um, perrier a la mance which is basically like a perrier with what i heard was a perrier with mint right and i i, I was at that point just really trying to come off as you know an american who really like knew her French culture. So I was too embarrassed to say, like, I, you know, I'd already asked him to repeat it. And I was just 
I wanted to show off. So I went behind the counter and I poured a Perrier and stuffed a bunch of mint inside of it and basically delivered like this garden of weeds to the band. And the whole table was like, what, what the hell is this? And in fact, Perrier à la menthe, eau à la menthe. So usually they say eau à la menthe. And he might've said that, which would have mean I just put tap water with the mint, which is even worse. But basically it means you're getting, usually a Perrier is kind of the standard fare. And there's this highly concentrated mint syrup. It's disgusting. It tastes exactly like mouthwash. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and you mix it up and then you put some ice cubes in it and it just arises this really neon, like Kelly green drink. Um, <laughs> I was not a good waitress there. I didn't, no one knew what they were doing. That place was chaos, but yeah. So is it easy? I don't know. You know, it's funny uh, in, in France, the sort of legacy of waiters is, is uh, it's a masculine role. It's mostly men, bartenders, um, the maitre d's, you know, that whole thing, even the kind of the head hostess, it, it's, it's usually men. Um, that's changing a little bit because I think, you know, restaurant owners travel and they see that in LA, New York, London, people want to see some hot girl, you know, as the hostess, not an 85 year old man who's been there his whole life. Um, but definitely at the waiter level, at the very, very fine restaurants, they're not messing around. You have to be really good at what you do. The, the crappy place <laughs> that hired me, I mean, they just had that, that place shut, you know, it, it shuttered. So they were just hiring. Any, anyone, could, <laughs> anyone could work there. <laughs> yeah. They were not discriminating at all on the Ruta lap. So if you people listening want to go to Paris and work at a horrible restaurant, Ruta lap, take, that's where you go. <laughs> It hasn't changed. I was there recently. It's worse than ever. The baked potato restaurant is still there. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. So barista. Yeah. Prep maker. Well, oh, waiter. there's a lot more. I mean, <laughs> um, close to where I am now in Northwestern Connecticut when um, I, so I lived in France, I don't know, six or seven years in my 20s. And I ended up meeting my husband there. And we we went to Brooklyn. We made it a year and a half in Brooklyn. I wasn't in the food industry. Well, I kind of was. I wasn't working in restaurants, but I I worked as a box opener for food and wine in New York, literally opening boxes and taking out the props that they were going to use and making sure the price tag wasn't on and it wasn't shipped. I mean, <laughs> you know, so glad that I have a college degree. <laughs> um, but, you know, we did get to see a lot of food shoots, but we, we were unhappy in New York. We were really broke and had very much underestimated the amount of money it takes to even just be on like a pizza and wine diet in, you know, in New York City or Brooklyn, as it were. So we moved to the middle of nowhere in the Berkshires in southern Massachusetts, where we knew nobody. We just found a house that we could barely afford, and we just went for it. And, um, you know, after the initial first couple of days, the honeymoon period of, like, we own this house, it's amazing, and then realizing that it was infested with rodents and all this stuff, my my main concern became, like, what we both work from home at that point 
you know, I was writing, I was starting to get some work as a copywriter and my husband's a, a filmmaker. I said, but we don't have kids at that point, no kids, no pets. How are we going to meet people? It was a very rural, very, very rural place that we'd moved it to a town that's one and a half times larger than Paris, but it had 700 people when we moved there. Very agricultural. And um, I started working for a newspaper, the Berkshire Eagle. And um, one of the assignments they put me on was to go interview this fellow, Peter Platt, who had recently taken over a cafe called the Southfield Store, which still exists today. And um, it had been defunct for quite a while. So I went to interview the chef and it was a lovely place. And it's still, it's so charming. It's in the middle of nowhere, great pastries and good food. And I drove away, I drove up the hill and I just made it to the top of the hill. He had mentioned that like they weren't ready to open. They were opening the next day and they didn't really have staff. It's hard to find staff. And so I drove back down the hill and he said, um, what, did you have extra questions? I said, well, no, I'm sort of approaching with a different hat. Would you hire me? Because I'd always enjoyed restaurant work and waitressing and, and I thought it would be a great way to meet people. And he said, can you start at six in the morning, you know, tomorrow? And I think I was there for three years, not steadily. They were very flexible, you know. Sometimes I would go back at that again at that point when we didn't have a child, we would go back to France to stay with my husband's family for a little bit, you know, a month or something. Anyway, but um, I did work there in some capacity for three years and it's, it's right up the way from me. It's about 15 minutes from where I work now. And it's the only place in like 30 miles to get a, a decent anything like treat you know, or I don't drink coffee anymore. And we can get into that. It was, I developed a problem at Starbucks, but it's the only place to get espresso. And so I still go there a lot. And I have to say, I mean, I know better to go on a day where there's brunch because I used to do the brunch service. But um, whenever I see them overwhelmed, I just, I really want to jump back, you know, and help. Because um, that place was, I guess I've always worked in kind of beautiful chaos where what I liked was I always worked at places where um, like, multitasking you know i was the opener at the south of the store i was the opener the barista the sandwich maker the pastry fetcher absolutely no one's letting me make the pastries that happened in a different area um and then you know when you're especially when you're a barista you're also a little bit of a therapist or like mm -hmm. mediator for people you know you do get into people's business or they come to they need you in a way, you know, whether it's yeah. to flirt or they need you to say like, oh, you want your regular Jill or whatever. Just yeah. they need to be seen. Mm -hmm. um, so you're also providing the sort of psychosomatic support that I think is really interesting. But um, it would get really hectic there. It was also cool. Like, this is another reason I, I just always tell writers, like, get your ass into you know, a restaurant world, unless it's a, you know, a discriminating place that caught hot, like a luxury restaurant, the places I worked were more or less accessible for most people, you know, so the Southfield store in the morning, I mean, I, I, I did the 6am shift. So I'd have um, truck drivers and contractors and a, a whole different working class people, right. And then around 10 30 or 11 we had the self-employed bougie 
freelancers. And mm -hmm. then toward the end of the day, kind of working class people would come back in, you know, needing to warm up from their whatever their their jobs were, a lot of loggers in the area. And I loved that. And it did help me to make friends with, you know, a wider cast of people. And but much more importantly, you know, when you're doing restaurant work in a place like that, that's more or less democratic. I mean, it, we, these were not Dunkin' Donut prices, but, you know, this was a while ago. Um, it, you hear all this different dialect and dialogue and lingo. And I always mm -hmm. found that so interesting because, you know, I'm not going to be a logger. I'm not going to be a roofer. I'm not going to, I don't have those skills. I don't, I'm too cold blood. Like I think I'd freeze, but, um, you know, I'm probably not going to, have have a, a roofer as a main character but but if for some reason someone from one of these lines of work shows up in my book I think I can at least think back to my interactions with these people and harness a little bit of the way they talked how many layers they had on you know yeah um yeah so I loved it and that place is still there so <laughs> if the writing thing stops working <laughs> go back <laughs> Yeah. I think did you did you mind having multiple roles at once? Like I really in the years that I've worked at restaurants, I've never worked at a place that I was just the waitress. Yeah, you right, always yeah. end up taking on yeah. so many other jobs. Like the country club that I work at now, we get a busser over the summer. Yeah. But those in between months, we're bussing our own tables. Yeah. We also pool our tips which is great but that means that I'm sort of like bartending too and yeah yeah serving. that's so, yeah that's rough <laughs> yeah but sometimes when I go out to eat and I see these places where the waitress is she's not food running she's not right. I'm like wow this would be amazing I don't yeah I, don't I mean I I always even in my own writing where I jump around in genres and stuff I I, I detest being stuck in a lane mm -hmm. um I would not have survived an atmosphere where I was assigned one task, you know, maybe being a bartender, but my mixing skills <laughs> are bad. Um, I'm not, I, I, I make things too strong. I just, I'm not, that's not my, in my skill set. but, but then, you know, living in France and having some friends that were chefs and stuff, um, I mean, you are really put through the ringer. You know, you'll be on sauces, right? Le Soucier, you're the sauce guy. You're the salad dressing person. You are only plating desserts or you're the sommelier. You're only doing wine. Um, that, I mean, you know, France has a different relationship to food and to dining and serving at a certain level of restaurant mm -hmm. than other places. And there's, there's deep respect in that. I mean, you're really training people well. I would have gone out of my mind. I mean, I, I experienced that in PR. I worked in fashion PR in New York when I wasn't opening the boxes for food and wine. And uh, it was a very old school P PR firm. And they did that kind of thing. They had me only labeling like clothes that were going out to Vogue for months. And I just had to sit and wait. I, with the rest of my, I would just sit at the table waiting, like, can I respond to an email? You know, can I make a phone call? Can I do something? And it was like, you are only labeling things for months and months. And um, it, I, I almost had a nervous breakdown. I couldn't take it. So yeah, I'm not, yeah. I'm not built for that. I like 
I like multitasking. I like jumping in and trying to hopefully help out, you know. So that didn't know that really, it didn't, it was the opposite of bothering me. I think I, I wouldn't have mm -hmm. um, been able to be in these places if I couldn't kind of jump jump all around because you have such lag time, you know, as a barista, yeah. there's these horrible rushes and then there's nothing. It's the same thing when you're on the sandwich station. There's just, you think, you know, you get to this moment and you're like, no one, no one's ever going to order a sandwich again. And then all of a sudden <laughs> they all come, you know? Um, so with the places I worked, we really did need all hands on deck, but you know, there'd be disaster moments where, there was this one guy, what was his name? I think Jake, the worst barista, like the worst, you know, and I'd be hands in mayonnaise and ham, like gross ham and see him jump on the, jump on the espresso bar. I'm like, oh. or, you know, but your regulars know, right. And they'd be like, oh, yeah. I need, let's wait until Alex is available. Alex actually owns the shop now. Um, he was the son of the person who bought it and is an espresso junkie. So <laughs> everyone knew like if Alex is working, you just wait until he's on the, <laughs> he's on deck and you, and then I would be like second choice, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was funny, but I love that. Um, I want to ask you some writing questions, but I have like a couple little, yeah. like more restaurant ones for you. So with all your jobs, um, <laughs> different ones, what was your biggest like pet peeve when it came to customers? Oh, well, it remains the same today. It's when people are condescending, you know, mm. and treat you, first of all, like you're dumb, uneducated, and just less than them, right? Because even if you, you know, lots of people in the serving industry, they, they don't have a college degree, you know, maybe maybe they didn't finish high school, whatever, but they're, they're there, they're doing a job that someone hired them to do. And generally, generally, uh, you know, they're doing the best that they can, or, they, you know, they have special skills such as putting up with ass hats. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that really, I can't stand it. You know, I, it's just as a, I don't, I don't actually eat in restaurants very often. Number one, you know, for financial reasons, but there just aren't anywhere I live. <laughs> um, but when, when I do see someone, being short with, I, I can't, I can't stand it. I, yeah. I, it, 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 it's awful. And then, um, it's weird. It's like people are more generally in my experience, they're more generous with wait staff who are bringing them food, like actually cooked food than they are in a kind of barista capacity. I mean, the things that I was, that were said to me as a barista, I was like, I, I am not your butler, you know? Yeah, I guess this was around 1999 or 2000. It was right before the kind of landmark McDonald's lawsuit where someone got burnt by hot coffee. Um, it was before that. And a woman, was it a woman? A woman came up. I was on the register and she slammed down all this dry cleaning, like quite a bit of dry cleaning. And she's like, I need all of this paid for. And I looked at her like, you realize you're at a coffee shop? right? Like not a dry. She said, no, no. I got a coffee the other day. It was too hot. I spilled it on my clothes. These are my work clothes and I need you all, you know, to pay for all of it. And I was like laughing, Whoa. you know, I mean, this was just not, 
these times were very different. You know, 25 years ago, the customer was not always right. We weren't yet in cancel culture. Not nobody was filming everything for their TikTok. You know, so you were just people were behaving in a more kind of less polished manner um, or less fearful manner. And I was like, lady, this is sort of a nonsensical request. And then all of a sudden, the, the this clammy hand of my manager landed on my shoulder. And I, of course, you know, and later she pulled me aside and said, the customer is always right. Like, Even when they dump coffee all over them. So like she was probably driving or caught, you know, yeah. And they're like. Yes, always. And, um, you know, that, that's a much different moment kind of interaction than someone being condescending specifically to you. Cause at that moment I represented a corporation in her eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I can't, I can't stand. I, I just, you know, we're all people in the world. We know what things cost. We know what houses cost. We know what rent costs. We know what cream costs at the store you know that your waitress is making i don't know what it is now what six dollars an hour you know like be nice you know okay so Mm -hmm. they put the soup down a little a little splatters or maybe it's not the right temperature okay you know can you get and i also i can't stand when someone treats their waiter waiter you know wait staff as if they represent the man or like mm-hmm. or even the whole restaurant like the whole restaurant right yeah. some larger ent- so you know the fact that your hamburger is undercooked why why are you not tipping the waitress you know she didn't cook your hamburger like mm-hmm. you know how things work right she's not back there line cooking so you know send it back but then you don't 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 dig the the waitress and yeah the, i don't uh, the tip pooling thing is hard the tip pooling thing is hard because, you know, you have the bus boys who the work they're doing is really messy. Um, it's not gratifying, but they're also not taking on the emotional labor of dealing with really difficult people, um, right. which, but, you know, by the same token, you know, I wasn't, I mean, I had to wash a lot of dishes, but I, I wasn't the one, you know, dealing with old ketchup on a plate. So it, it's right. complicated, but like bartenders who are getting tons of tips, you know, why are we pooling with them? I, that whole thing is, that whole thing is very complicated. And, you know, whether or not there'll be a shift toward the more European system where the gratuity is already included um, and the people are being paid, you know, a more or less living wage. Yeah. I mean, that's actually how it works at my country club is gratuity 18% is it's just automatically added because it's like, you know, it's members. So they have yeah. their account You're just yeah, yeah. To them. and people do give, you know, they can write in more, they can yeah. give cash on top of it, which is great. But, but the... it's still on top of the, it's still on top of whatever charge they're seeing for the hamburger. Cause in mm-hmm. France, you know, you see it well, at this point, it's like an $18 hamburger, 18 euro hamburger. That's all you're putting out that's all you're putting down on the table when it's time to pay, unless you want to add a little bit more, you know, you, that's the thing that's tough about being a consumer of food in this country, right? It's like you go out and you think, okay, the soup is $7. That's great. I know. And then you get the service charge, the tip, this whole next thing, you know, you're like $18 deep. Um, That I think that's just challenging on a, on a financial level, but yeah. Yeah. 
there's a lot of things to fix in America. So <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> um, okay, my next question is what was your least favorite side work? Oh god. Okay. Well that I that is easy. Um so when I worked at the crepery, we had to make the batter for the crepes, which is fine. And then we made the crepes, you know, with the little I forget what the tool was called, but around and around the burner. And my least favorite task was at the end of the night, carving the dried batter from around those I can't mm. remember, grit, fiery grids or whatever. Um, it, it was disgusting work and generally the, it wasn't done very well. And, and the smell, I mean, to be frank, it smelled like sperm all the time. <laughs> um, it was just gross. And that, I, to this, I can't really eat crepes and because of the, the smell brings me back. I worked a very late shift at that place. I worked from like 11 to four in the morning. It was a place, it wasn't working open all night, but the last order was like three 30 in the morning. And so for years, I personally smelled of crepe batter and bleach and, and cigarettes because the owner would smoke in this tiny bathroom and leave she would leave it ashing like in incense. It was very it was special. Um, and, and that smell, I just felt like I couldn't get it off me. And the funny thing is I'm now married to someone whose family is from Brittany, which is like the crap region. <laughs> and it's all they eat for lunch in the summer, like every single month. They, uh, and I'm finally coming around to it now because there's just, they literally only eat that for lunch, but for the first couple of years when we would go in there in the summer, I would get myself this like fish soup because I needed a scent that would overpower the, the, the spermy scent of the crepes. So yeah, <laughs> hands down, it was cleaning the crepe batter at the end of the night. Um, you kind of touched on this a little bit already, but I was curious, uh, well, what your writing life looked like while you were working in the service industry, um, but maybe also like how that environment helped you or yeah inspired you and in, in well i think um firstly all these different places i lived i lived sorry all these different places i worked it did feel like i lived there um <laughs> i'd get a lot of free food and beverages and stuff you know whether it was staples like butter oh we have too much butter this butter is about to go bad or um uh, extra pastry you know extra anything it, that, which was great you know as someone on a very low budget just more or less always had things to eat or at least scavenge from in the fridge mm -hmm. or you know when I wasn't working I could go to the creperie I think we were supposed to get a discount but my friends would always give me stuff for free same at Starbucks even after I left you know that people you watch out for your colleagues and feed them and give them beverages and oh, yeah. um that helped a lot, you know, cut down on, on what I needed to spend at the grocery store. And then it's, I mean, it's a tough industry because you do take your work home with you physically. I don't, I've never been in as frazzled and tired in my whole life as I was after a brunch session, like a really busy brunch session. I, I literally, I was like, I understand why waiters have, a lot of waiters have substance abuse issues. Like this is insane. The amount, I, I, I think I must've burned more calories then than I did giving birth. It's really <laughs> challenging. So you do take it home where you're, you're really 
you're exhausted, your back hurt, your feet ache. But it's different than, you know, I went on to work in marketing and advertising where the job just never leaves you. You know, I think I was safe and starting to watch a movie with my husband and I get some like fire that needs to be put out email. You know, you're on call all the time in, in, in a corporate America jobs. Um, even on the weekends, it just there's no um, divider between work life and home life and in the restaurant world at least for me uh, other than the physical toll you know when I left it I left it the customers were not calling me you know my colleagues I mean this was kind of like pre-cell phones but still I didn't have some massive group text going on but people just like kind of did their work and left the work there so that that allowed me, at least when I was trying to write, to not have all these cerebral concerns in my head, mm-hmm. um, which I enjoyed. And and then, I don't know, but it was hard. I mean, the physical toll was, I couldn't do it today. I'm too yeah. old, you know. And also, I have a sedentary job. So, you know, if my back is hurting and my feet is hurting and I'm trying to type all day. At, at, I'm 45. That's going to be a problem. So I'm grateful that I don't have to be in the in the restaurant world now. But and then I had um when I moved to France. So after the Rue de Lap, you know, after I kind of got established and was properly living there with a proper visa, um, which I did. You, I did not get a visa from this horrible salad restaurant. Like I went over undocumented basically, and um. But eventually I ended up getting, um, you know, a career in uh, alcohol distribution. So it was a little bit on the other side of things where we had a, we had the whole Modelo portfolio. So Corona, Negro, Modelo, Pacific, mm-hmm. Clara. Um, and we also had a lot of fine spirits. So we had Eradora tequila, among other things, which <laughs> uh, if I had that job now, like, my uh, what a happy woman I'd be but 20 years ago trying to convince high-end hotels and restaurants to have people pay like a lot of money for tequila and not shoot it was was a challenging job but that it was then like that job was amazing because it wasn't as physically taxing as the actual waitering work that I'd been doing um which did make it hard. I definitely, especially after busy shifts would come home, it'd be hard for me to write. I was just so tired yeah. and, and dumb, like dumb in my head, talked out, touched out. Um, um, but with the, I call it the Corona job because that was our biggest client and I had a Corona mobile that I had to drive around. Um, <laughs> but that job was incredible because I was working with bars, bars open late, right? So more or less I would have till 5 p.m which is, I'm an early morning writer. So I finally had my early mornings back. I've never thought of this before, actually, but so many of my waitering jobs, they they started really, really early or they finished so late that I had to sleep late in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I missed my most ripe hours to work, which are about eight until 11.30 in the morning. Um, Historically, I mean, I'm worthless past 4 p.m., and Same. so that worked perfectly for me because I didn't really have to start until 5 p.m. And I had a full day of writing behind me and I was getting a good salary. So that's when things 
really started changing for me is when I finally got a job that was kind of still in the service industry, but um, not physically taxing and gave me my mornings. That, things really changed. That's when I wrote my first novel, thanks to Corona. <laughs> yeah. That's what I love about service industry jobs too. That's similar to me. I don't have to, when I work, I don't have to be there till four. Yeah. And I'm the same way. It's so great to just have your writing done. Yeah. And then, then you can go make your money. Yeah. And you're in a totally different world, you know, and mm -hmm. you don't, I mean, at least in my experience, it, it was the same thing, but in reverse, I would leave my writing behind. You know, it's not yeah. like teaching where you go and you're with people who all kind of have the same concerns as you. They're all trying to make their plots work. They're trying to get uh, grants, tenure, publish, uh, publishing deals, whatever it is. And that's stressful. It was, it was, I was always grateful to just leave the writing world behind and go talk about like, oh my God, Jimmy ordered the wrong cheese again. He's constantly ordering the wrong cheese or, <laughs> oh, you put Chipotle in the mayo, like. Uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> whatever, right? Like, it just totally immersed in a different world of concerns and petty BS, and I, I love that. I really love. I like having different spheres of my life, where it's almost like slipping in and out of different identities, so I don't have to think all the time about being a writer because it, it can be really exhausting and deeply uninteresting. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, they're problems that we're making up in our own heads. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a little messy. <laughs> um, can you share, like, if you have a memorable experience or maybe like a lesson you learned when you were balancing uh, your writing life and then these service jobs? Um, foot baths really help. <laughs> no, like your feet are important, you know, mm -hmm. take care of your feet. Find a really good hand cream, you know, the stamp, prioritize sleep. No, I don't know. I think just um, listen and be generous, you know, it's the same, by the same token, where, whereas I think customers should be as kind as possible to a wait staff, um, unless, I mean, they're being egregiously, you know, racist or something like that. Right. Um, you know, by the same token, I would usually say to myself, if I had a horrible customer, okay, something's going on in this person's life that I probably could forgive them for, you know, and then I'd go into my writer brain and try to imagine what it was. And that, that would always help me. So, you know, I think just like with all things in life, you know, taking a stance where people are trying to get a rise out of you maybe don't meet them up on the summit of that rise and just accept yeah. like, Hey, you know, this energy that you're trying to bring into my life is sort of, it's, it's on you. And I recognize something's going on with you, but I'm just going to get you to check now <laughs> and you yeah. go on your way, you know, and hopefully yeah. you don't have to see me again. Cause apparently I'm sort of, sort of trigger or whatever. I, 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 uh, I, I don't know. I think it, it did help me let things roll off my back. But yeah, I mean, honestly, beyond that, I I don't know. For so long, it was just a way to make money and stay social and get out of the house. Yeah. yeah. I like that you're, you were thinking of it that way because, I don't know, there's been times in my throughout my life where 
I'm thinking like, man, I'm, I'm waiting tables. Like that feels mm. low status for lack of a better word. I've been describing it as like a menial job mm. and I'm like mm-hmm. trying to, you know, trying to build this writing life. I want to be more literary and I could, you know, I, I don't feel that way anymore, but I have felt that way in the past of like feeling yeah. bad about this job. But I think, I think part of that comes from comparison. And like I've mentioned in another episode, like the idea of a real job, like what that even means. But I don't know. I kind of liked how you were, it doesn't seem like you felt that way. You were just like, this gets me out of the house. I can meet people. Oh my people. gosh, I, I felt so grateful. I'm really, I think yeah. this is an important topic to discuss. And I blame MFA programs for not positing restaurant work as a viable option in the beginning of a writer's career. It, mm-hmm. it makes me really mad, actually, um, because I was, pr- I've, I was always proud to have that restaurant work. I thought of it as a great, I, I just really felt that it would only help me as a writer, help expose me. You know, I went to an Ivy League college, right? So most of the people that I was spending time with were, most of them, coming from a plate of place of great privilege. The teachers were tenured, place of great privilege, Providence, Rhode Island. You know, I was grateful to be behind the counter of places where I was interacting with people outside of, of the, the tax bracket of people that, you know, if I'd just stuck in my little university life, I would have been exposed to, which is important for writers without, you know, you don't want it, it could be really annoying when you know, this happens a lot of times in journalism where, you know, you decide that I'm just going to keep going with the logging thing. You decide you're going to have a main character who's a logging. And so you contact a logging, you know, can I shadow you? Like these people are going to be like, are you shitting me? Like, this is dangerous work. We know, you know, if you serve a logger every day, his, his what, black coffee, you, you know, maybe that's enough. Um, but, but also, like I've adjuncted and I've done the math and I made more at Starbucks. Certainly I would make sure more today where the, the rates have gone up, but I made more hour yeah. to hour. Um, and I got better perks. You know, you're going to work yeah. at Starbucks. You're going to work at Target. Like Starbucks had an amazing dental plan. Um, and I'm not, I mean, I'm kind of an anti-capitalist at this point, but when I looked at my contract for adjuncting, I, I was like, this is indentured servitude. You know, I, with all the big corporations I've worked for, whether it was in marketing and branding or specific, I'll just keep referring to Starbucks because some of the other places were a mess, but Starbucks was not a mess. And there was a real path to incentivize staying to work for them. Um, I left right before I would have started getting dental benefits, but I was not a full-time employee, you know, and maybe things have changed again. This was 25 years ago, but, um, there were 401k things that would have kicked in. Like there were real benefits and that's the thing about working for a chain, you know, like you're writing your novel and you're working at Applebee's good for you. Yeah. I I think that that's, probably a smarter move than killing yourself applying to all these different teaching jobs, flying all around the country and ending up, you have to adjunct at three places for $18,000 a year, you know, and you're spending money on gas. Um, 
you have to grade all that. You have to take all your work home with you. You know, I think sometimes that publishing is so elitist that instructors, teachers at MFA programs, or even in English in high school at the high school level, they're not telling people, Hey, let's crack open a computer or make some phone calls. Let's find out what, what's the, um, going rate at stop and shop right now. What's, what's target paying? Because the last time I looked, I think it, where I live, I think it was $25 an hour. Yeah. I, my adjunct, once I, once I took off the time that I had to spend getting onboarded because there's so much red tape, even though you're not up for tenure or anything, the amount of months I spent just prepping myself to be part of the system. I, I think I was a minus $3 an hour, you know, for every hour I was adjuncting. I certainly was not at $25. So especially in the first years of your kind of post academic life, whether you stop at high school, college, MF, whatever it is, I think that restaurant work or retail like work yeah. is freaking great, you know, and you can kind of, slowly start to find out what are you good at maybe you speak a couple languages and you can be a translator on the side and get some freelance work maybe you're um maybe you're a great editor and you can start to get some freelance work but for most people out the gate who have no clients and no established track record as a developmental editor or something where are these clients coming from if you live in new york and you think that out of nowhere you're gonna make your rent in freelance work, that's insane. That's completely delusional. And it's, that's the fault of teachers in our line of work being squeamish around talking about money. You know, and I think it's elitist and frankly selfish. Well, not selfish. It's, it's, it's harmful. It's harmful to not say to people, you know what? Get a job, go work for Starbucks for two years and work on your novel on the side. Yeah. What's wrong with that? Why, what's, what's wrong with that? I remember once at the, at the Southfield store, I, I showed up, um, like I purposely, I have this brown university sweatshirt and it's brown and it's so warm. And there are a couple of mornings I wanted to reach for it, but I was like, I just know some asshole is going to be like, you went to Brown University, you know, but never wear that sweatshirt. There was this one <laughs> a time in my life, my husband and I were trying to make it out in the sticks with just one car. Um, and it wasn't working. So I'd got this knockoff scooter. It was like a knockoff Vespa. It was a Korean model. And I was in the winter, like scootering to work. And it was freezing. So I was like, screw it. I'm going to put on my brown university sweatshirt. And sure enough, quite a few, you didn't actually go to Brown. And I was like, who, who speaks to people like this? And lo and behold, just one day of working in that dumb sweatshirt, I started slowly getting invited to like tea at people's houses, right? They were like, oh, you know, I told them, well, what, why are you at? Yeah, I went to Brown. What do you mean? I'm like working on a novel. Yeah. I'm happy to work here. This is great work. You like coming here. What's the problem? And then little by little, I, st- you know, I started getting these invitations and dinner party invitations. And, you know, I'm somewhat ashamed to say that's how I started to make friends. 
<laughs> maybe friends with the wrong people, but that's how I started to make friends. Other, I, other, if I hadn't worn that dumb sweatshirt, it certainly would have taken me longer. And I think that's obnoxious. Yeah. You know, it's not something I'm proud of, but that's not really on me. That's on people just assuming that everyone who works at a certain <clears throat> tier of cafe or restaurant is uneducated and poor and suffering for opportunities. And, um, you know, while that can be true, and I don't think it's generally, I just, what, these assumptions don't make sense to me. Yeah. I see that a lot and I've, I've had it, I've witnessed it with myself too. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not like one of those waitresses that are super chatty about myself. I'll just, I'm yeah. chatty, but not, you know how you meet. Right. You have to deflect you something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't typically do that, but if, you know, some of the customers, because they're, I see them, they're the same people all the time have been, you know, super surprised that I have gone to college or whatever. Cause I've been I mean, there. For I so don't long. understand why I really, I, I, yeah. I guess this makes me naive, but I don't, every time I am approached by a waiter, which I assume that they have something else going on they have some other dream because unlike in France, where being a lifelong waiter, it's a real thing. It's a real path. Like that can be your whole identity. And maybe you're working up in the hospitality region, you know, to one day be in the show, whatever it is. It's a, I, I just, whether we're in retail work or, you know, I just assume that a lot of hourly workers, but especially in the restaurant world, they've got something else going on. They're trying to save for something specific or they're writing an album. You know, they sing on the weekend somewhere. I just, that's a kind of assumption I make. I don't look at the person bringing me and my family food and think, well, I bet they dropped out of high school. I mean, this, right. what a classist, disgusting way to look at fellow human beings. And I, you wouldn't think that, like, do people think that of nurses? Right. Oh, well, I guess they didn't have it in them to be a doctor. I hope not. I, I mean, if something's really wrong, I, those comments drive me nuts. And of course, we should probably also touch on the, you know, what it's like to have a, a, a female body out in the world, right? Mm -hmm. When you're in the service industry, which is its own nightmare. I have, God, I'm forgetting. I also worked as a caterer. <laughs> oh, wow. That was hell on earth. That was the worst. That was the worst. I, of, any kind of food related job I had um, something about being in the, you know, usually you're like in black catering for highfalutin people who just really feel like they can touch your body. They can say things to you, um, oh, which, which makes me remember. I would just like to evoke one of my very, very favorite books by Merritt Tierce. I keep it behind me. Love me back. Love right? that book. Anyone right now listening and thinking, God, I love to read a book about the rage of being in a female body in a mostly male and wealthy space. Please read Love Me Back. It takes, it's told from the perspective of a woman with a lot of problems, hot mess. She's got real problems. But she's a very good waitress and she works at a high-end steakhouse in very high-end steakhouse in Texas. And the way she handles the sexual energy that's thrown at her, right? She doesn't handle it <laughs> in a healthy manner. But right. the rage inside that book, like, I wasn't surprised at all to learn that Merritt herself had worked at a high-end. It, it's just phenomenal. Phenomenal. 
I love that book. Me too. One of my favorites. Um, I'm, I'm hoping to touch on some of that too in the novel that I'm working on because that's been part of my experience too is um, not just everything we're talking about with customers, but what you said, being a female, having a female yeah. body in a mostly male, uh, predominantly male place as country clubs are. Well, right. And you're also working in what's very special about the country club world. And um, I have not worked in country clubs, but growing up, my parents were members of country club, right? Is that there's an assumption that like you do own the staff, right? Because yes. these people play, um, they pay their dues. It's not a public space. Mm-hmm. So unlike, you know, an olive garden where in theory, anyone, a millionaire could go in there, you know, someone who has not a lot of money, it, it, it's, it's an open democratic space, more or less. That's disgusting. And of course, the staff, they have to kind of play into it because Mm -hmm. the customer is king at a country. There's no country club if there's no members. Right. Right. So that is a very special world. And I am thrilled to hear that you might be exploring it because I I can't really think of books that that do. I mean, it's just my husband is French. And when we first got, he, he was like, what? At the, at, when we first moved to Brooklyn, my dad, he, he has since moved back south. But at that point, he lived in Connecticut and he was a member of a country club. And I had hidden that whole part of my childhood from my husband, you know, <laughs> who wants to boast about their like racist country club. Um, and but one night my dad wanted us, you know, have dinner and my husband put on jeans. Right. And I was like. Um, <laughs> can't do that. <laughs> you can't wear jeans. He said, "Why?" You, and and it, it. He just. Oh my gosh. He is so anti country club. And uh, we have one in our town. And my husband's a really good tennis player. So people are constantly bringing him in as a ringer <laughs> uh, to a club he's not a member. Uh, it's just a whole. Yeah. Please, please write about the country club world. I will pre-order the heck out of that. Thank you. That just reminded me, um, not the club that I work at now, the club that I've worked at too in my life. The one before was like a little more upscale and with the jeans, um, if anyone brought in a guest or someone who didn't know that you weren't supposed to wear, you have to wear a collared shirt and no jeans. Um, and if they came in for dinner and say they had their guests and they already had a, had a reservation, what are you supposed to do? My boss would go and get them like a clean pair of chef pants that they'd have to Yeah. So they had like a fashion closet. Yeah. Over <laughs> put over their jeans because God forbid you you were in there with denim. I mean, how I mean how this how it's like how is that any seventeenth century, right? Or yeah, the, the, my dad's club they had they had a closet full of like coat um, you know blazers that people had left behind. Mm-hmm. So you'd see these people walking around in blazers that were clearly not theirs and were just massive and tweed and. <laughs> Like, who are we, who are we doing this for? You know? Right. I know. Who are we doing it for? And, and, uh, I mean, it's what a world. What a, what a, hmm. yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This has been so fun getting to know all about your previous work life, your lengthy resume and, um, just brought up like a lot of great stuff. I, I love talking about money and just this work life while we're yeah. balancing this literary life. So I really enjoyed this. Yeah, it was, this was fun. It was fun to revisit. Cause again, like 
when I got your email about joining you on this, I thought, oh, I think I like fist pumped the air because <laughs> I mean, at this point I've spoken at countless universities and nobody asks like, Hey, what hourly jobs got you to where you are? There's just this assumption that, you know, you were independently wealthy or had some aunt funding your, or right. it's just, you just, the magic happens overnight. And no, it does it for most people. No, it's, you know, you're going to work somewhere and being condescended to, and, you know, you just behave like an adult about it and you get your work done and you make the amount of money that you need to live. And then on the side, you write your book and then hope that one day your writing will get you to a place where you can leave the creperie. Yes, <laughs> you know, and we don't talk about that enough. And again, I think the stigma that some people feel about restaurant work is, is, um, absurd and really needs to be reversed. And, and we should talk more about the stigma of being in an, an endless adjuncts. Well, yeah. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, like I said, you know, look up the hourly rates at the, your local target and, instead of your, you know, local college and you might be surprised. <laughs> So thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. And thank you to anyone who's listening in. A very special thank you to Courtney for talking to me this week. It was so fun to learn about all her different jobs and experience that have brought her to this point in her career path. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you in the next one.